God continues to lead us from his word. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Brothers and sisters, let us thank God as we listen to his word preached. We invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. We're going to talk today about the meaning and the message of Easter. In your bulletin is an outline. I encourage you to locate that and follow along. The events of Matthew 16 occurred at the very beginning of Christ's third year of ministry. He had just fed the 4,000 in the area known as the Decapolis. You have a little map there, maybe up there on your, in your sheet. And he just crossed the Red, sea, the Red sea, the sea of Galilee and landed in Magadan. And there um, he had this encounter with these religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now what makes this passage so unique and significant is this is a moment in Jesus' ministry where he turns his back on Judaism apostate Judaism. This is where Jesus uh, finishes his Galilean ministry. So this is known as the popular years. His second year was his popular year where he, he did a lot of things in the, in, with the crowds, like feeding the 4,000, the 5,000, etc. And at this point, he turns his back upon the religious leaders. Never again does he offer, does he call them to repentance. Um, turns his back upon them and focuses almost exclusively on his disciples. That would be his third year of ministry. So this is a really momentous moment in his ministry, and uh, from it we derive an understanding a little bit more of the meaning and message of Easter. Matthew 16, 1-4 is the text we're going to read. Let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for God's word as we read it this morning. Hear now the word of our, our King. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and uh, testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the time? An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. As far as the reading of God's word, let's let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the privilege you have given us this very moment to come here now and, and fellowship with you around this passage. And Lord, we pray that this would be another high and holy moment in the lives of us, your people. Where, Lord, we sit at your feet and hear your word. And, Lord, with open ears and eyes, God, we pray for that, that you'd open ears and eyes. And that, Lord, you enable all of us present to this day to understand your word, to be fed and nourished by it. Give us the faith to see and the eyes to hear, O Lord, we pray this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As I said at the beginning, this morning I want to talk to you about the meaning and message of Easter, but I don't want to talk to you about it from the perspective of the world, which from their perspective, the meaning and message of Easter is is chocolate bunnies and Easter egg hunts, and and, uh, you know, I think of the 
uh, peanuts, pretty girls, and you know, um, uh, that's not what Easter is. I don't want to talk to you about it from the perspective of the church, which um, with its you know, Palm Sunday services and the Monday Thursday services and the Good Friday services and, and the um, you know, uh, Sunrise Easter uh, uh, services. Not that any of that's wrong. What I want to do is talk with you about the meaning and message of Easter from the perspective of God's Word. Now, if there are any here who know your history, what I just said doesn't make a lot of sense because you know, and I know, maybe you don't know, but you will know, that Easter did not begin as a tradition for the church until the second century A.D. In fact, the church, or the early church, they Christianized a, a pagan holiday which was given itself towards Ishtar, the worship of Ishtar, which is where we get the word Easter, which is where we get the word Esther. So it, is, it was from a pagan holiday. However, the, the church Christianized it, washed it, um, and uh, cleansed, it, uh, cleansed it, and they began setting aside one day per year, especially to worship Christ in light of his resurrection. Now, insofar as the Bible um, speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it has a lot to say about Easter, even though Easter began two, uh, 200 years after the close of the New Testament. And because it is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that the Bible has a lot to say about it. In fact, it says two things about the resurrection, thematically. The first is, brothers and sisters, the resurrection is the glorious message that God gives new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, we read these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Incredible message. And that is what we've been celebrating in light of this morning. And that is what churches throughout the entire world are celebrating this day because of the new life we have in Jesus Christ through his resurrection. However, that is only one half of the message. There is a whole other message that we so often fail to recognize during this time. And that is the resurrection not only speaks of new life, But the resurrection also speaks of condemnation for the wicked. And that is the text before us this morning. It makes it explicit that the resurrection indeed is also a message of bad news, a message of condemnation for the wicked. So let's look at this. We're going to begin by looking at first identifying who are these wicked people that uh, Christ is speaking about here. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Notice the text. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So Pharisees and Sadducees are religious people. They were the religious leaders of Judaism. And yet, these are the wicked. Incredible. Now, what are the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, they're religious groups. We could, this is a stretch, but we could think of it in light of perhaps you've got Presbyterians, you've got Baptists, you've got Catholics, you've got Lutherans, you've got Mennonites, okay? These are two different religious groups. Denominations would be a stretch, but religious groups who held completely different uh, beliefs, although they were unified around one theme, and that was they were Jews, So, for example, the Pharisees were conservative, fundamental Jewish religious group in Christ's days, which which viewed the teaching of the rabbis as authoritative. 
and equal with Scripture. So that's known as the Mishnah, the oral law. Um, They were strongly separatists, so they separated from the world and considered themselves as the protectors of Judaism. They generally were from the working class, which meant they were the friend of the common man. The common man identified most with the Pharisees. And many of them, like Paul, uh, made their living from this trade. In contrast to the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, as you, or as you see behind me, were the most liberal Jewish religious group in Christ's day, had no problems with religious and cultural and political compromise. No problem at all. They spiritualized the, that portion of the scriptures that they believed. They held to the first five books of the Bible, and they spiritualized most of it, which meant that it really didn't say a whole lot practical for the world in which they lived, so they had no problem with compromise. They denied the supernatural, angels, the um, immortality, the resurrection, so they would have denied the resurrection of Christ. They held only to the first five books of the Bible and so rejected not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the teaching of the Jews. For the most part, they were aristocratic, upper class, and usually the high priest and the chief priests were Sadducees, and that was the case in Christ's day. Now, these two groups religiously were opposite on the if you were to put them on a, a, a spectrum they'd be on the opposite they would be they would be in fact there was not much love lost between them they were hostile towards one another towards their views and so it's rather ironic that because of their common enemy jesus they pulled it together and they came up and they approached christ now jesus christ's estimation of them was that they were evil and adulterous notice with me verse four Look at verse 4. It says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now, they just said, give us a sign. So by that, we know that uh, while Christ is talking about much more than just the Pharisees and, and Sadducees, nevertheless, they were lumped into this description of being evil and adulterous. Now, what made them evil and uh, adulterous? When you think of that, you think, man, they must be some pretty shysty people, murderers maybe, and horrible people, took advantage of people. What's, you know, what, what, what makes them so bad? Well, first of all, it wasn't what they were doing. In fact, they were pretty upright people. Did you hear that? They're pretty upright people. Um, Matthew 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So they're pretty upright. Um, in fact, if you looked at them, you would go, man, I wish, I wish my life was as good as theirs. So much so that Christ himself said, your righteousness, which is a standard way beyond the common Jew, has to surpass that of them. They are so good. They act so upright. Your standard has to go beyond them if you're going to be saved. So clearly what made them unrighteous or wicked was not what they did. Secondly, it's, it's not their religious bias. Uh, it's because the Sadducees, right? They're, they're the bad guys. No, no, the Pharisees, they're the bad guys. It wasn't that because of that. If you look in Acts 2 and 4 and the 4,000, the many people saved, many of those people were Sadducees. Many of those people were Pharisees. Paul himself was a Pharisee. So it wasn't necessarily their religious bias. Well, was it their, the fact that they were uneducated? No, these people, had, they, they were not, not ignorant. They um, had on, uh, what's the word? They were on the ball, right? If you notice two through three. But he answered and said to them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. 
So these guys, they were with it. They were educated way before Doppler and radar and the whole bit. They were very good at living the world in which they lived. One example of which is they could predict the weather by the old Mariners' uh, ditty, right? Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. So they, were, they had it on the ball. They were not um, in the backward countries where they didn't understand and, you know, ignorant and folly and, and worship pagan and foreign things. They were on the ball. Well, what is it that made them wicked then? How is it that Christ can call them an adulterous and evil generation? Brothers and sisters, it comes down to one simple thing. They were spiritually blind. Notice three... Again, do you not know how, or do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the time? These are religious leaders. The Pharisees spent their entire life studying. These Pharisees, these Sadducees, spent their entire life studying the word. Well, the Pharisees uh, certainly. And by way of note, notice in verse one it says, "And the Pharisees and Sadducees." That article with the Pharisees tells us this group primarily were Pharisees. So these men, primarily these men, spent their entire life studying Scripture. Uh, scriptures that, that speak of the coming promise of the Messiah, the Christ, who would come and deliver God's people. And that Christ, that Messiah, is right in their presence. They're talking to Him, and they think He's a demon. They think He's of Satan. We'll get to that. That's what makes them wicked. They've got God's Word. They understand his word. They think. But yet with all their learning and all that they know, spiritually they're ignorant about God. They don't know who God is. They don't know. They don't understand how to have a saving relationship with God. And that's what made them wicked. Not so, and let me be more specific. It's not that they didn't understand it. It's that they didn't want it. The way that this text reads... These, these, these men did not come to, to Jesus. So this is after his year of popularity, where he's now this big name, and everyone's talking about him in Galilee, which is north, way north, but down in Jerusalem, which is way far south, the words of him came down there. And so they sent these people up there to try to trip uh, uh, Jesus up with this conversation. So they were evil. And again, what made them evil here, this is not what, what they were doing. Right? We, all be, we often think, well, I'm evil if I do bad, and therefore God's going to get me, and if I do good, God will uh, not get me. He'll like me. That's what, not what made them wicked. Not their goodness, not their badness. What made them wicked was their refusal to believe. Their rejection of Christ. Clearly what this text says. So, in other words, it, it, actually, if you go back in Matthew 15, 14, um, actually, his first year began in chapter 15, 1, 14. Let them, let them alone, speaking of the Pharisees and the, the um, uh, religious leaders, let them alone for they are blind guides of the blind. They're blind. They don't understand truth. They don't understand who Jesus Christ is. They're blind, and that blindness makes them wicked. And you see that here. Notice with me verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up testing him. Do you see that little word there? That word is not an amoral word, meaning it doesn't have any good or bad in it. It's not amoral. That word means to try to trip someone up. That means they came with the sole purpose, not of getting truth or understanding from Christ. They came to Christ in order to trip 
him up. For example, it's the same word used in James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Temptation is when someone works within their situation to try to get you to fail, to fall, to stumble. And so, for example, Matthew 4.1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When the devil came, when Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness, he didn't come just to talk to him. He came to trip him up. And that's exactly what these religious leaders were doing with Christ. They came with the sole purpose of trying to trip Christ up to reveal that he was a charlatan. That's what makes him wicked. It's unbelief. In fact, you see it in further in verse, the, the very end of verse 1. They asked him, they were testing him and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Do you see that little phrase? Interesting phrase. A sign from heaven. Christ to this point had fed 4,000, had fed 5,000. Okay, and you know the, the story behind that, right? It's seven loaves, two fish, fed 5,000 people. Christ had raised the dead. Christ had healed lepers had healed dumb, deaf, blind people. He had turned water into wine. I mean, he had done a lot of miracles up to this point. So when they come and say, show us a sign from heaven, what's with it? They've got all the signs. They don't need any more signs. Ah, but you see, this is how they're going to trip up Christ. Because in the theology of Judaism at this time, they try to account for the fact that Satan is alive and well, And being alive and well amongst the Pharisees, how would you know that a miracle is not from Satan or is from Satan or from God? How would you know that? Well, they concluded that the only miracles that Satan could do are earthly miracles, like feeding the 5,000, raising the the dead, um, uh, healing the blind. And so from their mind, they believed everything Jesus did proved because there were earthly miracles that he was of Satan. Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. Christ actually explicitly says that. They were thinking he was of Satan. So they asked for a sign from heaven. What would be a heavenly sign? Well, a heavenly sign would be things like manna from the sky, as in Exodus 16, or the, uh, the stopping of the sun, as in Judge, uh, Joshua 10, or the setting of the stars in the heavens to fight for man, as Judges 5, or the, the drawing down of thunder. I mean, come on, Christ. Draw thunder down on those Romans uh, to destroy them, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Fire from heaven? Yeah, show us a sign. Bring fire down and destroy the Roman cohort. You do that, we'll accept you as as who you say that you are. But the truth be known, that wasn't their mind. They, They didn't say, if you do that, we'll accept you. They knew he wasn't what he claimed to be. They thought he was of Satan. That was their mind. So they gave him a test which they knew he could not perform. And brothers and sisters, that, therefore, is what makes them wicked. So hear me carefully. We all have come here thinking, I'm not wicked because I don't do, I'm not a murderer. I'm not wicked because I don't, I don't do those horrible things. Or maybe some of you come here this day and said, I am wicked. I do those horrible things. God could never love me. That's not what makes you wicked. What makes you wicked is if you have an unbelieving heart. What makes you a a wicked is that you can look at God's word, sit here this day and hear it and go, I disagree, I reject it. That will make you wicked. Not what you do or don't do. 
Listen to a couple passages. Hebrews 3.12. The, the text says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, a wicked, a wicked or unbelieving heart. Then say, or a wicked, unbelieving heart. Wicked heart is the same as an unbelieving heart. Did you get that? An unbelieving heart is what makes you wicked. Uh, we see it in Romans 11.20. Paul tells us that the Israelites were broken off for their unbelief. They were rejected as wicked people because they didn't believe. Psalm 14.1, the fool, which is the, uh, the proverb equivalent of the wicked. Anytime you read fool, you could read wicked. The wicked, the fool, has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. So understand, what makes a person wicked is not what they do. It's not their religious bias. I'm a Baptist. Well, we're Presbyterians. If you're a Baptist, you know what? You're, you're wicked. Or the Baptist, you're Presbyterian. You're, no, that's not what makes you wicked. We could, argue, we could say those are in-house debates between a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a Lutheran. Those would be in-house debates. That will make us wicked. What makes you wicked is to stare at Jesus Christ and say, I don't agree, I don't believe, I reject him. That's what makes you wicked. These men came rejecting Christ at the very beginning. And thus, would you notice with me, that Christ does respond to them. They were the the wicked. And Jesus, Jesus responds by giving them a sign, but not the sign that they want. They said, show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus, after two years of nonstop miracles, he's going he's to kowtow to their desire when he knows what in their hearts. They're not there to learn. They don't want to know Jesus. They, brothers and sisters, the Pharisees and Sadducees had a corner on power. They had a corner on money. They had a corner on praises of people. And therefore, when Jesus Christ came, he threatened their power, their corner, and their money. And that is why when Jesus Christ came, think of all the stories, whether it be Christmas, Easter, or whatever you know, why didn't they accept him? Because, brothers and sisters, they were far, long gone, way away from wanting to know who God is and what God's word says. They had power, privilege, authority, and Christ threatened it. So when they came, they were coming to attack a threat to their popularity, to their power. And so they would not believe. And that's what makes a person wicked. So notice the sign that Christ does give. It's not the sign of salvation. For them, it would be a sign of condemnation. Get this, verse 4b. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what is this sign? You and I read this today, like, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, it turns out about a year ago, Jesus, prior to this passage, almost a year prior to this passage, Jesus explained what this means. So these Pharisees would have understood this. So this would have been an indicting statement. Okay, a year prior to this, Matthew 12, 38, you can follow along, that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, this is a year before this, saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now here they're not trying to trip him up. They just show us a sign. And he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given it, but the sign of Jonah. 
Okay, the prophet. That's exactly what Christ says in our text. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, this is what the sign is, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah was swallowed by a large fish, not a whale, a large fish. And he was there for three days and three nights miraculously, and then that, that, that fish spewed him out on land. Well, just like Jonah was there three days and three, uh, three nights and spewed out, so Jesus says he would be in the grave for three days and three nights and then clearly rise. That's the point. He'd only be there three days and three nights. Then he'd rise. Now, brothers and sisters, what makes this so miraculous? You say, wait a second, Greg. There are other people who were raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. I mean, all these different people... Um, who were raised um, from the dead. What makes Christ's resurrection unique? What makes Christ's resurrection unique is according to John 10, 17 and Hebrews 2, 14, etc. Jesus raised himself. That's the difference. Lazarus was raised when Jesus, when God said, come forth. Jairus' daughter was raised when when it wouldn't be Jairus, that'd be later. But uh, top, right, um, Tabitha, I think it is. She was raised when Jesus uh, said, child, uh, arise, or whatever. Um, but Jesus was raised when after three days and three nights of being dead, he willed himself to life. Because he's God. That's the sign of Jonah. The resurrection. The resurrection which proclaims that that Jesus Christ is, is far more than just a man, but that Jesus Christ is indeed nothing less than God Almighty. In fact, if you would, listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Speaking of Christ, Paul wrote, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. It was the resurrection that demonstrates His deity. How? Because He raised Himself. Scripture is very clear on that one. Christ said, um, destroy this body and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say it will be raised up. He says, I will raise it up. So the resurrection, brothers and sisters, indeed testifies to the deity of Jesus Christ. But because of that, and because the religious leaders rejected Christ, that resurrection, that very resurrection that is our salvation, that you and I today are singing, Jesus Christ is risen today, hallelujah, praise God. That very act for someone who will not believe, that is also a mark of or a declaration of their judgment, of their condemnation. What that means is the resurrection is not, you can't be neutral. There's no neutrality. If Christ rose and you accept that, praise God, and you rely upon that, you're saved. But if Christ rose and you and you, you may say, well, yeah, I, I can accept historically he rose, but I'm not going to rely upon that. That means nothing to me. Then you're blind. And that will be a sign of your condemnation. You say, really? Yeah, look at Matthew 12, 41. Because there Christ makes it explicit what he isn't here. Because he's already done it. Matthew 12, uh, 41. After describing about the sign of Jonah, three days, three nights in the heart of, of the earth, so shall the Son of Man be. Then it says, the men of Nineveh, shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do you realize that when Jonah came out of the heart of the fish, he went and preached and the entire city of Nineveh repented? They turned back, they turned to God. 
But do you realize that when Jesus Christ died and rose again, do you know what these same religious leaders did? They paid the Roman guards. This is unthinkable because this could never happen. They paid the Roman guards money to say that they fell asleep. Romans only had a three-hour um, watch. That's all that, uh, that it was. Every three hours, you had a different watch. A three-hour watch, these Roman soldiers, that if they fell asleep, they would be executed on the spot. They, they told people, why? Because it didn't matter. They're just telling Jews, oh, we fell asleep. And his disciples, now if they're asleep, how would they know the disciples? The, the, the disciples came and stole his body while we were sleeping. Okay, that's what they paid them to say. Matthew 28, 13 through 15. That tells you how blind that they were. Nineveh repented. This generation is not going to repent. They're staring at their Messiah. They're staring at God in the flesh. They're in the presence of the long-awaited Redeemer. And rather than worship Him and follow Him and serve Him and give their life to Him, instead... They want to crucify him. They want to trip him up. They want to kill him. And therefore, that sign for you and me who trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a sign of our redemption. Hallelujah. Praise God he rose. But, for, but you got to realize that's one half of it. The other half is it's also a declaration that if you see the resurrected Christ in the pages of Scripture and you don't fall down and follow him, that will be a sign of your judgment. A sign of your condemnation. It's very sober. And that is why at the very end, we read the response that Christ gave to, after this encounter, we pick it up in verse 4c, and we read these words, and Jesus left them and went away. Now you go, he just left. No, no. That's, That's the idea behind he went away. Why does it say he left them? Why does it say it twice? He left them, he went away. It says the same thing. Well, because left is different from going away. Left them speaks of a judicial turning of the back. Okay, it's the word um, used, for example, in 2 Peter 2, uh, 15, the idea of forsaking or abandoning. So this moment, Jesus Christ turned his back on Judaism as a... As a, as a um, apostate uh, religion. And it would be very shortly after this that Jesus Christ with his disciples would come upon that lush fig tree. Do you remember that scene in Matthew 21? That lush fig tree and they're all hungry and Jesus walks up and there's not a fig on this beautifully green lush tree that you know from a distance is loaded with figs. They came upon this fig tree. There's not one fig and so Jesus Christ cursed it. He said, let, let it bear no, no fruit. And it died. Now you might go, well, that sounds like he lost his temper. No, no, no. You don't understand that. The symbol on the coins of Jewish coins for, uh, for God's people was a tree. And when he came and saw, because there's no fruit on that tree and he cursed it, 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 it withered. That's what's going on here. This is the beginning of God turning his back upon an apostate people who will not believe. And this is what God does. We see it throughout Scripture. Romans 1, 24. Uh, uh, Notice God at times. He's patterned with the wicked. He'll let them go. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Talking about the wicked. 
Because of their unbelief, we read, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, Romans 1, 26. 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they didn't believe Him, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So this is what God will do in the life of people. If they turn their back upon God and say, that is, that is not, this, I, I reject the resurrection. I, you know, oh yeah, it might, have, it might have happened 20 or 2,000 years ago, whatever. What difference does that make in my life uh, today? God will let you go. But don't misunderstand, that doesn't mean it's too late. You can come back from that. You can repent. You can, at the hearing of God's word, perhaps even this morning, hearing this, you can go, wow, Jesus Christ did rise. That means he's God. He rose himself. He's God. He's the Savior. He's the coming Redeemer. I want to follow him. Even though you may have lived a life of wantonness, what you might call wickedness. It's not too late. But there will come a time. When it is. When we read Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there is going to come a day when it will be too late. But today, by God's grace, it's not too late. As long as you have breath, it's not too late. In fact, the, the, the way the Bible describes today, it's a day of salvation. Every day can be a day of salvation for you. Second Corinthians 6 says, Paul says, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, believe it, trust him. For God says at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. uh, This is a day of salvation to every one of us this day who will receive the glorious message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and trust Christ, believe in Christ. You say, what does that mean to believe in Christ, trust Christ? What does that mean? Well, we recognize that we're sinners. Every one of us here are sinners. None of us would say, I'm perfect. And because we're sinners, you've got to recognize that that one sin that you uh, you recognize that you're guilty of is enough to condemn you to everlasting hell. Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. If you have one sin, you and I should go to hell. But you know what God did in His grace? He became a man. He lived the perfect life, upholding the law, never sinned. And then He died as a substitute. He died in our place. 2 Corinthians 5, He made Him, God made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He died as a substitute. We get His right standing, He gets our non-right standing, and thus He died. If you sin one time, you must die. Jesus died for our sin in the place of us. And because of that, we get to live in the place of Christ. That's what it means to believe. It's it's to say, stop trusting self. I'm good enough. On the day of judgment, I'll go before God and say, you know what? I've lived a pretty good life. God will accept me. No, if you have one sin, God will not accept you. So it means to, instead of trusting self, you trust in the work and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But get this. Jesus Christ came and he died as a sacrifice. But get, but get this. A dead, a dead Savior is no Savior, right? It, it, Jesus Christ's death is what saves us. But if he just died, that doesn't save us. Listen to Second, or 1 Corinthians 15. Follow along. I'm almost done. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. If he didn't rise again, then it's for nothing. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. 
But if the dead um, are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of all men most to be pitied. But now, get this, brothers and sisters, Christ has raised from the dead the first fruits of those who die. Christ has raised. You know what he did when he rose? So not only did he die for your sin, but in his resurrection, one, he demonstrated he's God and therefore could be a savior. See, we all die, and I can't die for, uh, for your sins because I got my own sins. So that Jesus died for your sins, but he stayed dead? That would have meant that he was a, a sinner like you and me. He can't die for your sins because he's a sinner. But get this, he rose by himself, which means he is what he says that he is, God. And because of that, you know what he did with his resurrection? Two other verses, Ephesians 4. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. When he ascended, he led a host of captives. In other words, Jesus Christ went to the grave and he grabbed a bunch of us and he brought us forth. Everyone who will believe, he gave them life. He, 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 he let uh, free a host of captives and gave gifts unto men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. That comes from Psalm 78, where the psalmist says this, Asaph, that speaking ultimately of Jesus Christ, Christ led forth his own people like sheep. He led them safely so that they did not fear. So he brought them to his holy land, to his hill country, which his right hand had gained. Do you understand what the resurrection is? For you and me who believe in Jesus Christ, who recognize I can't save myself. If I stand before God on the day of judgment on my own, I will go to hell because I've got sin. But Jesus Christ, he came and fulfilled my life or he fulfilled the law and therefore gives me life. So if I, I take that as my sacrifice, then I get his life, he gets my, my death. And therefore, I get led forth free this day, free of sin, free of guilt, forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, guess what? That's describing you. No condemnation. It's finished. But it's also that very same sign on the day of judgment will also be a sign of condemnation. Because you hearing me that this day, the Jews hearing Jesus Christ in that day, heard it. And they did not believe. Please do not respond to the preached word this morning by not re, uh, believing. For if you do, this will be, this glorious event for most of us, all of us here, will become a horrible event. Because it will de declare judgment just like it did in Christ's name. So what do you do? You ask. You go before God this day and say, God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me, please. Give me the life of Jesus Christ. Give me grace to follow you as my Savior and Lord. That's what happened when the Philippian jailer was brought out of jail here, Paul and Silas. He said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe, trust, rely on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. May God give us the grace this day to do that. If you're celebrating and live the resurrection of Christ this day, let me close you with one more, uh, one final quote. Spurgeon wrote these words. And they're so gloriously blessed as it describes what we have through the resurrection of Christ. Spurgeon wrote, finished. By one word, Jesus declared that he had broken the head of the old dragon. We have a stern battle yet to fight, but what does that matter? Our Lord has defeated the foe. 
and we have to fight with one who is already vanquished. Surely it is finished sounds like a trumpet of victory. Let us have faith to claim the victory through the blood of, of the Lamb. Let all Christians as one mighty army take comfort from this dying word of the now risen and ever living Savior. His church may rest perfectly satisfied that his work for her is fully accomplished. So if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, it is finished is the shout of victory. The foe is destroyed. We reign in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this day thanking you for this incredible description that you've recorded in your word for us as an everlasting memorial of what the resurrection means. Not only from scripture we know it means victory, salvation for us, your people, but we also know it means condemnation for those hearing yet unbelieving, hearing yet unmoved, hearing yet I don't care. Lord, we pray therefore everyone listening that if there should be an unbelieving heart, that you'd open their eyes, Holy Spirit. Cleanse them, O Lord. Let them see their need for the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. Lord, that they would turn from self-trust, thinking they're good enough, to knowing they're bad and not good enough, but that Jesus Christ is good and fully, fully able to save. God, do a work of redemption, we pray, in the lives of of your people this day, either engender the faith of ones who do not believe or strengthen the faith of those who do, that we might be a people united this morning in our praise and adoration of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.